Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, this story has created quite a buzz. A truck carrying 5 million bees spilled its contents outside of Toronto this week. And that's when the signal went out to other beekeepers in the area to swarm to the area to help recover the escapees or the escape bees, if you prefer. We find out how that works and did they succeed? Would you pay extra to sit in a kid-free zone on an airplane? It's what a few airlines are offering, including a discount European one this past week. Is it even feasible? And can we expect that offer to swoop here into Canada? It's now more than likely that no future Prime Minister will live at 24 Sussex Drive. Stephen Harper moved out. Justin Trudeau's never moved in. Renovations to the crumbling and rodent-infested house could cost tens of millions of dollars, but it's not the price tag that might close the chapter on the long-time PM residence. But security, with the search on now, according to reports, for a new spot, for a new home, that would be safer. But first, today is International Overdose Awareness Day, and it comes as the number of deaths continues to climb in this country. We meet an Alberta doctor and addiction specialist who is part of a pilot project to test wastewater for traces of narcotics with the hopes that it will act like an early warning system for all those who find themselves on the front lines of this crisis. First up again tonight, again, August 31st is International Overdose Awareness Day annually, a worldwide campaign to end overdoses, stigmas, and remember those who have passed away. The theme for this year was recognizing those people who go unseen. The numbers are staggering. We've talked about it on the show before, obviously. Since 2016, more than 30,000 people across Canada, that number is higher now, have died from opioid-related overdoses, more than from other major accidental death causes. Uh, Here in BC, seven years after BC declared a public health emergency for the opioid crisis back in 2016, that's where I am, more than 1,400 British Columbians have died from toxic drugs so far in 2023 alone, putting the province on track for its deadliest year in history for overdose deaths. In fact, if you add it all up, unregulated drug toxicity is now the leading cause of death in BC for people between the ages of 10 and 59, surpassing murders, suicides, natural diseases, and accidents. That gives you an idea of the scale of the crisis. Next door in April, it's proving to be unequally or deadly year, at least. I'm thinking back to April, which had been the deadliest month on record for drug overdoses in that province. And of course, behind every one of those numbers, every one of those staggering numbers, is a life cut short, right? A family, friends left behind. And it is they who have started to speak out, of course, over the years. Several mothers who lost loved ones gathered on a Vancouver beach today. This is Shireen Schuster and Deb Bailey from a group called Mums Stop the Harm at the Vancouver event. I lost my my eldest son, Jordan. Very sadly, he was given pure fentanyl and he passed away in August 2018, 25 years old. We need to uh, help people see, no, these people are people like us. They were all worth saving and they could have been saved. Of course, it can be easy sometimes to look at the trend lines and the numbers and hear the stories and feel pretty discouraged about the lack of progress over the last seven years or so. But that doesn't mean that lives aren't being saved, that advances aren't being made. Take this 
in Alberta. Wastewater testing, you may remember that from the COVID-19 pandemic, is being done at six sites through the province as part of a pilot study by the Cummings School of Medicine and uh, as well as others to look for the presence of opioids. In June, for example, research there found that the amount of opioids in samples taken was four times higher than the month before. So it can act as kind of an early warning system, just as it did for COVID. Uh, Addiction specialist Dr. Monty Gosh is part of that, and he joins me now. Uh, Dr. Gosh, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. This is always a significant day. I mean, I think, you know, here in BC where I am, I know where you are in Alberta, we, we get these numbers every month and they're always talked about and the numbers never seem to drop. In fact, if anything, they seem to increase. Uh, you've obviously known people as well. This must be a, a tough day for everyone who's involved in your in your area. A hundred percent, you know, and it's, it's, it's so sad to see the numbers and the names uh, many of us of us have lost patients, uh, peers, and colleagues. Uh, the 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 I think we're reached a point now in our society where I don't know a single person who has not been touched by death, uh, much the way that I don't know a single person hasn't been touched by cancer, uh, in some way or form or the other. So it's a, it's it's very tragic indeed. Right. And a reminder today, too, just how widespread this crisis has been, this opioid epidemic, and how it has taken people from every walk of life, often people using on their own, people hiding, uh, not wanting to do it publicly. I mean, it is really a scourge. Indeed. And then that's the population that we're, we're finding most hardest hit. It's the people who are using alone, who are heavily stigmatized, who don't want to reveal that they're using. I mean, at least in Alberta, that makes up at least 7% of our overdose deaths. Um, so the vast majority, and it's really that population that we need to target and really need to sort of remove that stigma that exists with substance use because it's no different than diabetes or hypertension. It's a medical diagnosis, it's a biological process, and I think we as a society need to recognize it as such. Right. I mean, we know just how addictive opioids are, especially when we see the things, that, the synthetic opioids that we're seeing now. In, indeed, and it's it's getting more and more potent. I mean, fentanyl, for example, is 50 times more potent than, than, than morphine. And now we're seeing carfentanil in our wastewater, which is 50 times more potent than fentanyl. And, uh, and so things are just getting worse and worse and worse. And there's new contaminants that are also entering the drug supply. So we're seeing higher levels of benzodiazepines, which is another class of, of sedative drugs that's entered the market. Uh, in Alberta, we're starting to see a rise in xylazine, which is an animal tranquilizer, it's also increasing in numbers. Uh, and uh, what we're noticing is that these chemicals, these, these contaminants, if you may, are getting mixed together, making new powerful concoctions or cocktails that we haven't seen before. In the past, we've seen fentanyl alone. We've seen fentanyl mixed with benzos. We've seen carfentanyl by itself. We've seen fentanyl mixed with xylazine. But now we're starting to see these mixes, these new concoctions and cocktails uh, between these more potent groups, such as benzos mixed with carfentanil, mixed with xylazine. So the, right. the, the contaminants are getting worse and the mixtures are getting worse. Right. And that makes them harder to reverse as well, right? That makes naloxone and the other tools we have somewhat less effective, I understand. A hundred percent. Exactly. So what we're noticing now, at least in Alberta, is that uh, our standard naloxone kit contains three vials of naloxone. And we're starting to use five or six nowadays to reverse these overdoses because of these, these potent drug contaminants. Um, but what's interesting, though, and what we're noticing, at least in the wastewater, is that the, uh, the levels of contaminants waxes and wanes. So the months where we'll have, high, we'll have higher levels of carfentanil and, and benzos and other months will have less. So this may be a good predictor of how much we might need to use or how much we might need to stock.
Right. I mean, it goes without saying the toxicity of the drug supply is a huge factor here in the in the mortality. And it's interesting the way the wastewater research works, because I think a lot of us may not have known much about it pre-COVID. And then all of a sudden it was talked about a lot in the COVID days. And it's interesting about the work you're doing now. Tell me a bit about, about how this works when it comes to trying to use this as sort of a warning system for the drug supply. Um, so it, it's very much, as you just pointed out, based on what happened with COVID. We, uh, we noticed that COVID was a great indicator of, of numbers and that helped us sort of allocate resources in terms of emergency departments and our hospitals in terms of how to manage these potential numbers and what to be on the lookout for, you know, making sure that we had enough staffing, for example, available to deal with this. And wastewater can also do that for substances. So what we're, we're seeing now is that uh, wastewater and what we try to validate, at least for this pilot project, was to, to ensure that we could accurately measure wastewater, make sure it's reproducible, and that, uh, and that uh, the, the, the validation of the assays, if you may, uh, was fairly uh, standardized and then measure that over an eight-month period. And we've done all of that. And what we've seen is that um, there is certain trends and patterns that we notice. So, for example, we notice that there's a spike in NDMA use uh, after the weekend and that it decreases during the weekdays, sort of keeping, you know, sort of keeping and following track with sort of what we call the weekend effect that people are using more on the weekends. Uh, we noticed that there was a spike in car fentanyl four times the normal amount, as well as xylazine entering the market around the same time we saw a spike in overdose rates here in Alberta. Um, does that explain what happened to the, the drug overdose numbers in Alberta? Not necessarily. I mean, I think for that, we need to actually test the drug samples themselves to make sure that it is actually car fentanyl and xylazine mixed in together. Uh, but it gives us a, a, a way to sort of maybe correlate that data and make inferences that this could be related to that. Um, and, and as you mentioned, it could be an early warning signal. So back in April, for instance, we saw this drug called lamimazole in our drug supply. Lamimazole is a cutting agent. It's an antiparasitic drug that was in cocaine specimens back in 2012. Uh, and when I was in uh, residency back in 2012, uh, we knew that lamimazole was causing a huge drop in white blood cell counts for cocaine users. Why that's so important is that white blood cell counts are our main mechanism of fighting off infections. And we had these groups of individuals who were using cocaine that didn't have their immune system in place because of lamimazole, this cutting agent. We had to put them on high empiric antibiotics, like high potency antibiotics to keep them alive, and it's deadly dangerous. Uh, it ca can cause death. And so... Being aware that in April we saw this spike of lamimazole for three weeks, we were able to let our colleagues in medicine know that they need to be watching out for this, telling our emergency department colleagues that they need to be on the lookout for low white blood cell counts so in case someone did come in with infection so they can treat them readily and quickly. So this early warning system can be helpful. Dr. Monty Gosh is an addiction specialist uh, joining me tonight. He also teaches at the University of Calgary and the University of Alberta. Uh, we're talking about a pilot project that he's involved with that measures or tests wastewater to try to figure out what kind of drug supply is, is in a particular area at any given time. It's International Overdose Awareness Day today. And of course, we're talking about uh, sometimes the numbers can be a little you know, it could be a bit of a downer, obviously. And here we're talking, trying to talk about things that have advanced over the past little while to see if there's any light at the end of this long and, and very deadly and awful tunnel. Uh, Dr. Gosh, tell me a bit about, so there's six different sites where you've been measuring the wastewater. Uh, have you noticed differences between each? Like, is, it, is it proving effective so far? Um, yeah, we definitely have noticed differences. And, and we're still, again, sort of making sure that there are, uh, the results are accurate and whatnot. But, yeah, we've noticed trends. We noticed that in certain locations we'll see a spike in car rental, whereas there's no spike in other locations. 
and that these uh, in some ways do correlate with the numbers uh, of these locations as well in terms of, of overdose rates. Um, so it's quite unique to see, of course, we need more longitudinal data to sort of confirm that these trends are consistent with these spikes. Um, but uh, but it is it is very interesting to be able to compare one jurisdiction to another uh, and see what's happening uh, with these different you know different types of cocktails, different spikes and different types of compounds. Overall, we're measuring forty eight separate substances uh, and their metabolites, and so there's a quite a broad range of, of things that we're looking at. Um, but what's also really cool is that we're able to sort of see if something new has entered the drug market. Uh, so, for instance, once a week from these various sites, we will look at the entirety of the wastewater and try to see every single compound that's in there. And that could be laundry detergent. That could be some new sort of chemical that's in there. But uh, what we are actually looking for is is chemicals or, or, uh, or synthetic substances that could be contributing to the drug poisoning crisis. And we sort of look at that and measure that against the existing global data bank of different substances to see, is this a new analog of fentanyl? Is this a new compound that we haven't seen before? Is this something we need to worry about? And last but not least, is this something that we need to warn uh, our, our stakeholders uh, about as well? So, um, you know, it's really cool technology that I think we could use and, and put into play um, quite effectively. Right. I guess ultimately, in a perfect world, what this would be able to do is you'd be able to have a system whereby everyone was alerted if you saw something. Uh, and so the healthcare system would be able to prepare people working on the streets would be able to prepare everyone involved with with helping and treating addiction would be able to understand or uh, treating overdoses would would have a much better concept of what it was they were dealing with. Exactly. And we believe that knowledge is power. We know that this is just one piece of the knowledge. Uh, this isn't supposed to take away from uh, existing drug testing that's like, already occurring at supervised consumption sites, uh, at mm-hmm. health canvas sites with drug seizures, uh, with your tox drug screens, for example. It's just one piece of information. But what's unique about this information is that it tells us what's going on at the population level around drug consumption. Um, so we're not looking at specific individuals or a single drug specimen. We're looking at it through a population level, um, and so that's that's quite unique. We can see what's going on at any given time uh, with with a group of individuals, uh, especially with what they're metabolizing out, because basically we're seeing what they're consuming and what they're peeing or pooing out, right? So that's that's right. that's the key here is that we're really looking at what they're metabolizing. Right, wastewater is wastewater. Obviously, you know, you know, I, I look at these numbers every, you know, each year we we talk about this day, and then I was mentioning earlier the numbers come out monthly, and we've seen them across the country. I think today was another example. If you look at all the different local coverage of International Overdose Awareness Day, just about every community is now struggling with this. The numbers are going up. How do you find optimism in this? Because it feels like for the last seven years in BC, at least, there's been very little uh, room for optimism. Unfortunately, you know, it's it's hard. And uh, as a clinician, as someone who's on the front lines, uh, as well as in the, on the research scene, it's, it's very, very difficult to see these numbers not change, knowing that you've done you know, so much and you're trying to do as much as you can uh, for those who are using substances. Uh, the optimism that I have is, is talking to my mentors who've lived through the HIV epidemic back in the 80s. And the stories that I hear from them is that throughout the 80s and the early 90s, uh, there was little hope in sight for managing HIV. They hadn't come out with the antiretroviral medications as of yet. Uh, they were seeing people die in droves. They saw entire communities being wiped out, um, but they kept on. 
and they kept working and they kept working towards new drug discoveries and new options and solutions for that population. And that's what keeps me going, knowing that there's so many people working on this uh, that hopefully we can find something soon, but we're still not doing enough. And, and I think to your point, we're seeing more people dying uh, from drug poisoning events than we are seeing heart attacks, car accidents, um, you know, murders. It's, it's a, a huge issue and we're not putting enough resources into it. We put so many resources into the previous biggest public health crisis, which was COVID. Billions upon billions upon billions of dollars. And yet that same amount of attention, that same amount of effort is not being applied to the opioid epidemic. Uh, and we need, sort of, we need to change that. It's, a, it's our biggest public health crisis facing Canada right now. Uh, it's what's causing a drop in our overall life uh, or mortality rates. You know, we were at 82, I think, was the average lifespan before, and now we're down to 80. Um, oh. And it's probably going to continue to drop. So, uh, I mean, we, we need to, to do more to deal with this. Well, Dr. Gosh, I really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's talk about something that we talk about quite often on the show. That's Canada's housing shortage is clearly one of the things that is top of mind for many of us these days, affordability and trying to find housing. Um, and a reminder of the numbers, they're already, they're already pretty staggering. Uh, apparently, we need 3.5 million more homes to be built by 2030 in this country to reach affordability. That according to the Canada uh, Mortgage and Housing Corporation. The scale of the problem has the federal cabinet, who met last week at PEI, even looking at doing things like placing a cap on the number of foreign students entering the country until the housing shortages are tackled a little bit more. Uh, these impact the students as well, obviously. Here's Sean Fraser, uh, the minister. We've got temporary immigration programs that were never designed to see such explosive growth in such a short period of time. That's Sean Fraser, of course, the housing minister now. Uh, but what are the number of new homes needed is in fact too low? What if that is a conservative estimate? What if there are more people in Canada, meaning an even more acute need for housing, than we were led to believe and that those who are trying to figure out how many houses we need have been looking at? Well, that's what my next guest has figured out. And that's what he brought his findings, as a matter of fact, to that same retreat that federal liberal ministers were taking part in in PEI last week. Deputy Chief Economist at CIBC Capital Markets, Benjamin Tao, finds that there are likely one million more non-permanent residents in this country than the government has estimated. The main reason for the discrepancy, and there are a few, he says, is that the government is not counting people who remain in the country after their visas expire. The way it works is that 30 days after those visas expire, oftentimes people stay to apply for new visas and so on, uh, that they're essentially counted as having left when they haven't. So that means there are even more people looking for housing in this country and even more housing needs to be built. Now, StatsCan says it's a problem they were already looking to rectify before Benjamin Tao brought it up. But it also means we may not have a clear picture or at least not a clear enough picture of just the sheer number of houses this country needs to find some stable footing on this issue. We went right to the source to find out more about it. Benjamin Tao, Deputy Chief Economist at CIBC Capital Markets, joins me now. Benjamin, thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. This has been much talked about over the past few days, I know, but you presented this to the uh, Liberal Cabinet on their retreat in PEI early last week. What is it that you found and what is it that you were pointing out to them that could be an issue with with how they're tabulating how many uh, people are actually in this country right now? 
Yes, uh, recently people have been talking about the rising number of non-permanent residents, NPRs, including, of course, foreign students, and the number is rising very quickly, very fast, in fact. So the question is, uh, is it a good thing or a bad thing? But the point that I'm making here is that uh, whatever the number is, and it is a big number, it's actually larger because we are undercounting non-permanent residents. And if you have two minutes, I can explain why. There are two components to it. One is uh, the census. Now, picture the following uh, situation. You are 22 years old, foreign student that arrived from Canada yesterday, from India, China, or any other country. You are young, you are confused. And then the, the census people come to you and say, is this this apartment that you're living in? Is this your permanent residence? Now, how do you answer this right. question? Because maybe you think your permanent residence is uh, your parents' house in your country. So you basically say, uh, no, it's not. And the minute you say no, you are not actually answering the survey. Uh, in addition, many of those uh, young people are coming from countries that unfortunately you don't speak to the government. So there is a significant undercounting of the census uh, non-permanent residence number. And even Stats Canada will admit that that's the case. In fact, uh, in 2011, they estimated that this undercounting is about uh, 40%. Well, today it's about 20%, but the number is so large. So in absolute terms, it's very significant. So that's one measure of undercounting in the census. Now, why is it important? Because CMHC, the housing agency, is using the census people to focus demand for housing and therefore allocations to municipalities how much to build. And if your starting point is low, your focus will be low. And that's exactly what happened. The next right. thing <clears throat> is the following. Let's stick with this um, 22-year-old foreign student. Now this 22-year-old is now 24 years old. He's about to graduate. His student visa is expiring. You apply to another, another visa, to an extension. However, Stats Canada assumes that the minute you, your visa expires, in fact, 30 days after your visa expires, they assume that you are out, but you are not. The vast majority of them stay and they apply for extension, they apply for, to be a permanent resident, whatever it is, they are not leaving, although Stats Canada is assuming because of their model that they are out after 30 days. This undercounting or non-counting is 750,000 people. Wow. That's this is a, a huge people. number that yeah. we are undercounting. So that's a story. Right. And it has a cascading effect, as you mentioned, when it comes to, and this is specifically around housing. Uh, we already know there's a quite a significant housing shortage in this country. And what you're suggesting is that it's actually far shorter than we're even making allowances for now. Exactly. So the situation is not great by any stretch of the imagination. And unfortunately, it's worse than perceived because we are undercounting people. And that's very important. Now, the good news is that Stats Canada, which is a very good agency, one of the best out there, is aware of the issue and it's going to change it and fix it. So I hope that uh, within a month or so, we'll be more educated about what's happening. Right. You brought this right to the Liberal cabinet. Uh, what was their reaction to this to this information that you were giving them? Unfortunately, I cannot discuss the meeting. I can discuss only what I said. And right. I discussed this in addition to many, many other Issues. The topic was not this. The topic was housing affordability, and mm-hmm. I came with a list of recommendations what to do. Uh, this item was a very small part of the overall conversation, but that's the, that's what I can say about that.
Right, but certainly one that's that's registered a lot because I think you 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 printed it as well in 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 a in a memo or in a letter, uh, and people reacted to it quite quickly because it it does show that 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 we have a housing crisis in this country, and perhaps we're underestimating just how many houses we're going to need to build. You sort of suggested that we're almost running to stand still at this point. Absolutely, we have a situation in which demand is rising very very fast, but unfortunately supply is uh, slowing because of higher interest rates and many other reasons. Restriction, you know, we have we don't have enough labor. There are many reasons why supply is not rising. So supply is not rising and demand is rising extremely fast. So we have to run faster in order to stay in the same place. And that's the issue that we are facing now. And that's why we need some policies here and now, not only five years from now. Right. And again, you pointed out this was just one aspect of what you were presenting, uh, and, and perhaps an important one, because it suggests that we're not building fast enough even to maintain, we're not, the targets we're, we have now aren't even proper. Uh, what else were you suggesting? What else do you think needs to be done at this point in time? Well, first of all, I think that we have to introduce a sense of urgency to the situation. This is a crisis, and we have to treat it as a crisis, and it's urgent. COVID was a crisis and we dealt with it very quickly. We have to really look at housing as a major crisis that we have to react to it very quickly. We need a significant uh, improvement in the coordination between all levels of government because sometimes you have the federal government doing something, the provincial government is doing something, and the city does not even know about it. So they have to coordinate much better in order to achieve optimal results. And then I believe that we need a rental solution. We need the government to go back into the market and build uh, uh, social housing the way it was the case in the 60s. But then we have a market solution. We need a rental solution to the problem. We need to create a situation in which you are 35 years old, you are married, you have two kids, and you are renting. Nothing is wrong with you. That's the mentality that we have to develop the way it is in Manhattan, uh, Chicago, London, Berlin, and many other places. And in order to do so, you need a huge supply of purpose-built rental, apartment buildings, not just condos, but apartment buildings, rental. And in order to do that, you need to provide developers incentives to choose not a condo, but a purpose-built rental. And you can do it by using the tax system. You can eliminate the HST on purpose-built rental. You can lower the capital tax uh, rate uh, that uh, they pay if the amount is or if this money is going to other purpose-built rentals. So we can be very creative in order to encourage supply and it can be done. Right. But as far as this undercounting is going, as far as uh, it seems like stats can, and I think this may have been in the works even earlier, it seems like this may be rectified relatively quickly and we may have a, a clearer picture of just what kind of housing shortages we face. Yes, I sure hope that that's the case because we need to get the right numbers because the precondition for any problem is to get the magnitude of the problem. And that's something that we have to do. And I know that South Canada will do what it takes to fix the numbers and to get the right numbers so we can plan, plan ahead. But we also have to think about a non-permanent residents and foreign students and to what extent we have to link their numbers to the ability of colleges, universities to house them. This is an issue that we have to face. Um, I am the first premier uh, to uh, to write to the Bank of Canada to raise this issue. I wrote to the federal government as well to suggest some ways that we can work together to bring down costs that don't involve inflicting this kind of pain on families. 
Benjamin Tal is Deputy Chief Economist at CIBC Capital Markets. We've been talking about housing, first and foremost, something that he brought up uh, last week and has continued to be uh, covered a lot this week. Uh, StatsCan has even responded to it, uh, which is an undercounting of an undercounting of the number of people that are actually in this country. Uh, first of all, in the census, the way the census questionnaire is, is, is structured, and also just with the idea that StatsCan, StatsCan believes that when visas expire, student visas in particular, that 30 days after they expire, the person leaves the country, and that in, in most cases is simply not the case. So we may in fact have 750,000 more people in this country needing housing uh, than, than we've actually allotted for. Um, Benjamin, a big week next week. Bank of Canada is going to have another interest rate decision come Wednesday. What are your thoughts? Are we going to see another hike? That's a good question. And I'll, I'm going to do something that I usually don't do. Right. I will tell you that I really don't know. <laughs> don't get used to it. I will not admit it very frequently, right. but I really don't know. It's 50-50. The Bank of Canada is looking at the data, and for every uh, bullish, strong economic number that justifies higher interest rates, I can show you a negative, weak, bearish variable. So it's really 50-50 at this point. Now, we have to remember that this bank is a biased bank, because if you have an, a, you know, an option, a recession versus inflation, they will take a recession any day. Namely, they will be willing to overshoot as opposed to undershoot, because with overshooting, they know how to deal with. You know, undershooting is much more complicated. So they are rather, you know, to raise interest rates, they prefer to raise interest rates more than needed, as opposed to stop too early. And that's more or less where we are. Now, every economic recession, in my opinion, in the past, was helped, if not caused, by a monetary policy error in which central bankers raise interest rates way too much. Why? Because inflation is a lagging indicator. Mm -hmm. Inflation is telling me about the past, not the future. But show me the central banker that will have the guts to stop raising interest rates when inflation is still elevated, and that's exactly where we are. So if the Bank of Canada was an AI machine, they would have stopped in June. But they are not. They are human. They have fears. They have doubt. They don't want to take any chances. So they're overshooting. They're overshooting, in my opinion, already by 50 basis points. And if you, they move in September, it will be another 25 basis points. And we're seeing I totally suppression. understand where it's coming from. Yeah, we're seeing suppression. Sorry? I mean, the, the Premier of BC again today came out and basically asked the Bank of Canada not to raise interest rates anymore. We're seeing politicians get a little more vocal about what they think the Bank of Canada should be doing. Uh, do you think that'll have any impact? I doubt it. The Bank of Canada is independent. The Bank of Canada is looking at only one thing, inflation. They have a target. The target is 2%. As long as it's above 2%, they will have to do something, even if it means overshooting. I believe that the economy is slowing down now. Maybe not a recession, but clearly a soft landing or what I call a wannabe recession, not a real recession, <clears throat> because the labor market is still very strong. Inflation is moving in the right direction, especially if you measure it correctly. One of the most significant uh, items in terms of inflation rising is interest payments on mortgages. It's rising by 30%. Now, think about it for a second. The Bank of Canada is raising interest rates to fight inflation. Higher interest rates are adding to interest payments on mortgages that are adding to inflation. You see? It's yes. like putting a humidifier and dehumidifier in the same room, let them go at each other. Wow. So that's basically what we are talking about. And that's why if you measure it correctly and you take out interest payments on mortgages, as we should, inflation is not as scary. It's about 2.2%, 2 2.3%, very close to the target. So I believe that we are close to the target already. The Bank of Canada does not need to raise interest rates, but if they will, they will do it by another 25 basis points and call it a day. 
Right. And you have pointed out that if they overshoot, the only good news in that, perhaps, if you're hoping that interest rates come back down, is that it will allow them to cut faster in the future. Absolutely, because then you generate a slowdown that is more significant, more severe than needed, and therefore you need to react by cutting interest rates faster. Regardless of what happens, we need interest rates to start falling in 2024 into 2025 and 2026. Why? Because in 2025, no less than 57% of all mortgages will be reset. And if the rate would be as high as it is now, this reset would be very, very painful. Because remember, the cohort of mortgage takers in 2020, 2021, took those mortgages at extremely low interest rates. So now when they have to renew five years after, it would be a major shock. And that's why I hope and pray that interest rates will start falling in 2024. Our forecast is that they will start falling in June, May of 2024. Right. And I mean, I don't know how much you can talk about this, but we've been seeing uh, reports already that the big banks, including yours, uh, are having issues with amortization that already many mortgages are beyond the 25 year rate simply because of these rising interest rates and affordability. Yes, the way it works is the following. If you have a variable rate mortgage in the contract for most banks, not all, you have a situation in which you're not paying more, although interest rates went up, you're paying more interest, this principle, and therefore your payments is fixed. By definition, this means that your amortization goes up from 25 right. years to sometimes 40, 45. That's the mechanism in which we are operating. And that's why it's uh, softening the impact of higher interest rates. It takes longer to feel the pain. But uh, come uh, 2025, 2026, all this will disappear and you will have to actually pay the actual rate. And that's the risk. And that's why it's very important to see interest rates falling before that. Right. That's Patrick exactly. Powell, as always, thank you so much. A pleasure. Thank you. You may know that I was in Ottawa recently. My mom still lives there. And as part of the usual journey to Ottawa, sometimes you take a drive around, especially in the summer. And one of the places you invariably end up is Sussex Drive because that's where the uh, Governor General's residence is. It's really nice. And right across the street from that, or just about, is maybe one of the most famous addresses in our country, 24 Sussex Drive, long, more than 64 or 60 years, the home of the Prime Minister, right? Well, it hasn't been for quite a while now, more than eight years uh, since Stephen Harper moved out. Justin Trudeau never moved in. He's been living on the Governor General's property in a place called Rideau Hall ever since. The problem, of course, has been the structure itself. Uh, it's well documented. It's in disrepair. There's mold. There's rodents. I think part of that's been cleaned up, but it's been a long slog. And according to the National Capital Commission, which is responsible for this place, uh, any renovation of the 12,000 square foot home would require, you know, something like $36 million. That seems like an awful lot of money, but it's not the price tag that may seal the fate of 24 Sussex. Reports out this week suggest that um, it will never, be, again, be the, the home of the Prime Minister, the address of the Prime Minister, and it's mainly a question of safety. The federal government is looking at options for a more modern and secure house in another location for any future Prime Ministers. Um, so what to do with 24 Sussex? It seems ridiculous that we can't figure out how to provide the Prime Minister a proper residence, but here we are. And what of this idea of building it somewhere else, closing that 64-year chapter, or even longer now, although it's not been lived in in a while, uh, on 24 Sussex as the original residence, or the official residence, rather? Uh, 
we thought we'd ask Michael Warnick. He's someone he know who knows. He's the former clerk of the Privy Council, the head of Canada's public service, and is now the Jaroslavsky Chair of Public Sector Management at the University of Ottawa. His book is called Governing Canada, A Guide to the Tradecraft of Politics. And Michael Warnick joins me now. Thanks so much. Well, thanks for reaching out and thanks for the book plug. Yes, I mean, it's a fascinating book because it, it really is a behind-the-scenes look at the exactly the kind of thing that we're talking about today, which is the ongoing saga of 24 Sussex, Sussex Drive. Uh, just your reaction to the fact that it's taken so long to try to fix this issue. It's frustrating and disappointing. Uh, you know, name me a country that doesn't provide a residence for its head of government. Uh, we're not talking about big uh, infrastructure like the White House or 10 Downing Street or the kinds of things you see in Paris or or, or Berlin or, or, um, or Tokyo. We're just talking about a house for a family. Uh, and the fact that it's been kicked down the road, prime minister after prime minister for close to two decades now really is disappointing. Yeah. And when you look at some of the issues, I, I gather that right now, as it stands, 24 Sussex is no longer viable. We're not going to see that that address uh, be the prime minister's residence. We don't think again. Well, I think what's come to the fore in the in the last uh, few days in particular is a serious attention to the safety and security issues. Um, the prime minister, whoever it is, is going to be a target. And uh, we've seen attacks on Parliament Hill, attacks on Rideau Hill, Hall, uh, attacks on politicians when they're out campaigning. So safety and security for the for the uh, prime minister and above all for their family has now become a very big concern. And that basically, in my view, rules out the 24 Sussex site. It's just too close to the road, too close to the river. It doesn't let the security people provide the kind of protection that's needed. Yeah, for any listeners who haven't been there, if you're coming along a Sussex Drive, you eventually sort of reach an, an area where you have Rideau Hall where the governor Governor General lives just sort of off in the distance on the right. And on the left, right on the edge of the Ottawa River is 24 Sussex. It's it's actually a surprisingly, as a official residence, it is surprisingly close to the road. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think uh, your listeners can certainly relate to some of the incidents that have happened in terms of, uh, you know, car bombs and, and uh, drone attacks, snipers, uh, the kind of attacks that took place in Paris and Brussels and so on. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, it, it's a tough job to keep uh, somebody like that safe uh, and not have them worrying about their family when they, when they go off to work. Right. And we, we I, mean, I think we remember the Aline Chrétien uh, incident many, many years ago uh, at 24 Sussex. So we've already had some examples of, of some of the security issues that can exist when you have a residence so close to the street. Yeah, and that's compounded by the just the deterioration of the building now. It is in such bad shape. So I think uh, between the site uh, from a security perspective and the costs of renovation, maybe we can take 24 Sussex off the table now and have a serious discussion about a, a building on a new site. That might clear up some of the logjam that we've had here, too. If there's a decision made that we, there needs to be a new site and you start from scratch. Sure, but then you will run into the other issue in Ottawa, which is kind of nimbyism. And, and uh, people that have lived here have seen, uh, you know, uh, various projects announced, and then the local neighborhood gets upset and they're fended off. We've also seen projects uh, announced by governments in Canada and cancelled by a subsequent government in some sort of fiscal virtue signaling. So, you know, the portrait gallery, the history museum, the, the the federal court building, all were announced with great fanfare and then later canceled. So I think it's going to take some cooperation, uh, some courage by the government and some maturity by the opposition to get this done. 
Right. The opposition leader, Pierre Polyev, was out talking about this um, this week, and he seemed to say that he wasn't opposed to a new residence. Of course, he lives in a in a government funded residence. It's it's ironic that the leader of the opposition has a nicer place these days than the prime minister himself. Um, but he seemed to be open at least to something being built. Yeah, I watched the clips carefully. And if after you fast forward through all the virtue signaling about mansions and luxury and entitlements and so on, he actually did leave the door open uh, because I think now he's expecting this problem to be in his in basket in less than two years. And um, if I was him, I would not feel comfortable moving my family into 24 Sussex. Uh, he has to uh, he has to deal with it, whether he likes it or not. Right. What do you think has been the logjam here, so especially under the Trudeau government, because of course Justin Trudeau kind of grew up at Twenty Four Sussex. He knows that place. Um, mm. What's happened in the because when he came in, there was this idea that it, you know Stephen Harper had moved out for those renovations. We understood why that happened, but all of a sudden it just kind of stalled. And I and I guess it really was it always about the money. I think it was about the political backlash that any prime minister uh, anticipates, uh, you know, to spending money on mansions for their personal use. Uh, other prime ministers chickened out when faced with the issue, and, and Mr. Trudeau had the option of moving into the Rideau Cottage uh, property. I don't know that, he, you know, when he started in 2015, he expected to be there seven or eight years later, but here we are. Michael Wernick is former clerk of the Privy Council, the head of Canada's public service. He is at the Jaroslawski Chair of Public Sector Management now at the University of Ottawa. We've been talking about the ongoing saga of 24 Sussex Drive. Uh, Radio Canada this week reporting that they may, in fact, not keep the prime minister's residence there. That if instead of renovating 24 Sussex uh, up to standards to have for someone to live in it, they'll actually maybe look at building somewhere else. Uh, Michael, your, your book, Governing Canada, A Guide to the Tradecraft of Politics, kind of looks at issues such as this one, if not this one specifically. A lot of people outside of Ottawa look at the 24 Sussex thing and think, how can you not get a house built for the for the leader of the country, for the leader of the government, right? How could, how could this not happen? Does it, does it tell a bigger story sometimes about some of the things that go on behind the scenes between the bureaucracy and the politics and so on? I think it's almost entirely a, a political issue. Um, it's about the um, you know anticipated backlash from uh, media coverage and and the opposition. And uh, you know, as I said, several prime ministers have faced up to the issue and decided all there was in front of them was pain and no upside. So kicking the issue down the road is always a good option in government. Right. Um, and if you do it enough times, you end up in in the sort of uh, impasse we're in. Right now, it's happened before. There have been issues, uh, you know, with official residences in in provincial capitals. Uh, government aircraft is always a juicy topic. People promise to sell them or cancel them, and so on. So, um, I think politicians have to be very respectful of taxpayers' money and not give off the image of uh, of entitlement or you know being out of touch with with regular taxpayers. But they have a job to do. We that we ask them to do and giving them a safe place to live uh, or work or a way to get around the country does seem a reasonable investment. Yeah. And sometimes it it feels like we we often focus on these things. I mean, I remember, you know, either working in England uh, and covering their government. And these issues come up sometimes when spending goes out of control. But rarely does the issue of where the prime minister lives comes up or whether or not it needs renovation. I mean, at times it does, but it feels like it's not uniquely Canadian, but there's something specifically Canadian about uh, about how we... uh... Yeah. It, it happened in Australia and Canberra. The same dynamic took place and uh, a series of prime ministers refused to move into the official residence and they ended up having to tear down and build a new one. 
Right. Uh, so example, I mean, you were um, assistant deputy minister at the Department of Canadian Heritage at one point, right? How would this work? I mean, how would this behind the scenes, how does this are reports being done about the state of the residents and they need sign off for the political side for it to go forward? And that simply doesn't happen. Well, there are a handful of official residences, including Rideau Hall for the Governor General, the Harrington Lake property. There's a building that's used by visiting foreign dignitaries. And then, of course, you know, the 24 Sussex. They are in the custody of the National Capital Commission, which runs a lot of buildings and property in the National Capital. They have no ability to create the money for themselves or approval of the project. They are in the business of developing options and proposals and then implementing them. But this will have to be a political call and it's going to have to be made by the prime minister. Right. And I, I suppose this prime minister, given this affordability issue, is now finds himself in an even more difficult position on this issue than he may have been eight years ago. Yeah, it, it might have been a bit easier to do at the very beginning of a mandate with a majority. It's not easy to do at the end of a mandate close to an election with a minority. So it's going to require, if it's going to happen, uh, some maturity by the opposition and, and uh, agreeing that they will uh, work, you know, work together and allow options to come forward. We're talking about a building that might last 100 years. It's a reasonable uh, proposition. And so, you know, with the average shelf life of prime ministers, there could be 10, 12, 15 prime ministers and their families live in this facility. I think we should look at it as an investment in the future. Right. And for people outside of Ottawa, because often 24 Sussex is seen as kind of an Ottawa issue. And I was just there and I know you drive by it now and it's beginning to look, I mean, it has looked pretty dilapidated for a while. And it's mm -hmm. sort of, and it's not, it's not a great look. I mean, the French embassy is not far away. It's great looking. Rideau Hall's grounds are beautiful. And then you have this kind of symbol and you think, well, what's that building? You think, oh, that's the prime minister's residence. And you think, oh, isn't that strange? I guess just for, for people outside of Ottawa, uh, it's important that, that, I mean, it feels important that we have a proper residence for the, for the head of government. Yes, I, but the difference, as I, as I was saying earlier, is it doesn't have to be the White House with hundreds of offices for staff. It doesn't have to be like 10 Downing in London, where the cabinet room is on the ground floor. Um, the buildings in Berlin and Paris and Tokyo are much larger scale. Uh, so, I, you know, my view is, uh, and I agree with the last comments by Mr. Paul, yeah, we're talking about a residence, some family quarters, a bit of home office, the modest entertaining any embassy and building in Ottawa would have. Uh, and above all, that it be safe for the family. So uh, we should be able to get it done. There are other places in Ottawa to do the big events and to hold cabinet meetings and for the prime minister's political staff to work. Uh, we're talking about a house. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. And, and are you more confident today than you have been recently or is it about the same? I think that this dynamic of, uh, you know, virtue signaling about mansions and spending on yourself is, has been the obstacle for many, many years. And I did have a sense of, oh, here we go again. But Mr. Polyev did acknowledge that, you know, most countries, all countries that I can think of, provide a safe residence for the head of government. He's going to have to deal with the issue if he does become prime minister. So maybe there was a sliver of daylight for them to work out some kind of uh, compromise. Right. And, and Michael, I, I gather you, you're, you're well, you're well, uh, well, crap, or you're experienced enough to notice when, day, when there's even a hint of daylight on these issues, I suspect. Well, it, it, you know, it'll have to be some kind of political negotiation between them. Um, th there may not be a lot of upside in the opposition to, you know, to beat up the government on, on this particular issue. They have other targets of opportunity. 
Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it'll be up to the government whether they, you know, want to pursue any of the options that the National Capital Commission presents to them. Right. Or they may just get off until after the election, which is what we've uh, we've seen before. Michael Wernick, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for your interest. Well, there's a lot of bleeding hearts around who just don't like to see people with helmets and guns. All I can say is uh, go on and bleed, but it's more important to keep law and order in this society than to uh, uh, be worried about uh, weak-kneed people who uh, don't like the looks of, uh, of a at, at any cost? At any cost? How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? Well, just watch me. Ah, just watch me. Pierre Trudeau on October 30th, 1970, at the height of the October crisis, of course. It's hard not to look back at that time and not think of that very public show of, well, defiance, resolve, you call it what you want, from then Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, That famous interview coming just after the FLQ had kidnapped both James Cross and Pierre Laporte within five days of each other. But even as that crisis faded through the invoking of the War Measures Act, as the CBC reporter Tim Ralph mentions in that now infamous question and answer session. It now appears that the Prime Minister's attempts to keep Quebec separatism and separatists in check was far from over. Uh, According to new research based on previously classified documents, this time or in the future, after that interview, for instance, it would be far from in your face. It would be instead uh, conducted in the shadows. The research shows or reveals a secret operation within the office of the Prime Minister to gather intelligence about Quebec separatists after the 1970 October crisis. It's not clear when this ended, but it was a task force, so to speak, a group. Um, And it appears to have lasted between 1971 and 1972. It was strongly opposed and eventually undone, the research shows, by the head of the RCMP's intelligence wing, John Starnes, at the time. His notes from the time document warnings of, quote, political scandals of a major or political scandal of a major proportion if the work of the group was ever made public. Stern's accounts were accessed by Dennis Molinaro of Ontario Tech University and another professor that he worked with at Brunel University in the UK through records released under access to information laws. And the report on what they and what they contain was published this week uh, by the Journal of Intelligence and National Security. And again, we'll go right to the source, Dennis Molinaro, a legal historian with Ontario Tech University and a former national security advisor himself joins me now. Dennis, thanks for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Well, this is uh, quite the find. D- tell me a bit about how this all came together. What was your interest in, in looking into this period or, or, or this specific subject? So uh, this had been coming about from some research that I had done previously in 2021 that I published in my book where I was essentially writing about how it looked like the RCMP was actually on on trying to get on sound legal footing uh, in its activities when it came to wiretapping, and and the federal government was pretty evasive in this regard. So I got invited to Brunel University in London to do a talk about this and at a workshop by Philip uh, Davis, my co-author here. Uh, and he had mentioned to me that he had some documents from the early 1970s. He knew that they were, he had just skimmed the surface of it and he got them in the late 90s, uh, but hadn't ever really gotten to go into them in much depth. And they were getting moved from office to office. And it's curious how he got them. He asked for these documents from PCO, uh, from the Privy Council office, and they released them to him. They released them to him under access to information, but he didn't file the access to information request. Someone else had done so. And to this day, we don't know who who did, but they were released because they had been previously released under access to information, but we right. don't know who made the original request. 
Right. And I, I was mentioning that I, I had experience with that in the past. If you went to the Freedom of Information office, you could actually see what other people had asked for and sort of ask for that information because it's out there. But uh, right. no one had looked at these for a while. Then. And what did you wind up finding? Because it looks like quite the treasure trove. Right. So when when he, you know, agreed to like we were going to work together and he sent them to me by snail mail this summer and I had a chance to sit down with it, I was just blown away because, you know, what I was reading here was essentially that the RCMP director of the security services at the time in the early 1970s, John Starnes, was pushing back against what he describes in these personal memos he makes to himself is a secret group operating within the prime minister's office utilizing the Liberal Party apparatus to essentially spy on Quebecers. And I say Quebecers because it's supposed to be directed against separatists, but separatists writ large, the movement. And it's also involving members of the Canadian military in the executive in the organization. And Starnes was basically pushing back saying, we can't do this and we can't be involved with this. And this was all done in, needless to say, was all done in secret, in complete secret. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, this is the thing is that we from the from the documents Philip and I went through, it's clear the McDonald Commission knew about this. And the McDonald Commission was tasked with investigating the activities of the RCMP in the 1970s. And it's what leads to the creation of CSIS. They knew about this, but they didn't put it in their report. The only thing that was ever put in the report were the the actions of the RCMP and how they were wrong and shouldn't have done what they've done. And this is the same narrative that's repeated on federal government websites, Library of Parliament, about RCMP dirty tricks and what have you and the creation of CSIS. And so why? Why was all of this other information that shows that the government was way more involved in what the RCMP was doing not ever released? You ask an excellent question. Tell me a bit about the because... You know, to go back to that period, of course, we're coming out of the October crisis. We're coming out of the War Measures Act. You know, the PQ is is clearly the separatist movement is growing in strength in Quebec. I mean, there was some pushback, obviously, after the October crisis, but it's growing in strength. Yet, you know, the PQ will be in power within four or five years at this point. And clearly, this was a concern of of you know specifically the federal government at the time, but also obviously uh, of Pierre Trudeau. But tell me a bit about the Fantan Group and what was what exactly was going on behind the scenes here, because it sounds very shadowy. No, it, absolutely. So, I mean, what we gather is we what we get is we get from from John Starnes and from one of his officers, John Ferris, who ends up being invited to visit what the group is doing. And so they describe in broad strokes that this is a group that is essentially collecting intelligence, connecting information on Quebecers. And they also mention that they're engaged in, quote, political action. And that's a very broad term using in, in the in the context of intelligence. Uh, what does that mean? Political action. They don't actually describe that. But the description that Ferreris gives that this group is collecting intelligence, there's a, a member of Canada's military involved in the executive, and they want the RCMP to contribute to the group, uh, is enough for Starnes to basically say, this is wrong. You cannot be using the intelligence services of the country in the service of a political party against another legal political party like, you can't do this it would be the equivalent of 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 the current you know if, if, of the government using the CSIS to target the conservative party or something like this like you, you right. can't do that right right I, and 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 this is when you say the other political party was this specifically the Parti Québécois or what were they yes, it was the PQ it was the PQ wow and and this and you mentioned it as well and and not to you know this may be a bit 
tough to follow and it's a bit blurry, but they, it was also being operated not just within the, 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 the machine of government, but also within of the Liberal Party itself, right? Yes, because it's, it's, it's being operated out of the PMO, right? And so, so the PMO is a party political office still. Uh, even though it's the prime minister's office, it still is, is a party office. It's not the PC, it's not the Privy Council office, which is in service of the government and a civil service staff you know, body. Right. Uh, and so that that's the key difference here. And actually, in the documents themselves, you know, Starnes makes, you know, note and so does Ferreras that the Liberal Party apparatus, as they put it, is being used to collect intelligence on, on Quebecers on the, on the separatist movement. And so that's where the, the problematic aspect comes in, where, the, you know, this is the this is a stuff of dictatorships, you know, intelligence services being utilized directly for the party, as opposed to civil servants, you know, and then and, and working in the government that are nonpartisan. Which is interesting, too, because I gather if I and my memory might not be serving me correctly here, but over the years within Quebec separatist groups, they used to talk about this stuff and people used to dismiss it. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is the thing is that there, there's actually it's been coming out solely in drips and drabs. There's been things being released uh, through Access to Information Act. Things are we were getting a little bit more and more indication that more was going on here than we ever thought previously. Um, and now really that this is out. There's no reason that we shouldn't be getting more documents. I've requested them now from PCO. I don't see a justification in holding back this information now. It's 50 years after the fact. It needs to come out. Um, because really, the significant, there's, a, there's a larger significance here to the present uh, that we really kind of need to get into. Um, and it's important. When you looked at what, ha- what happened to the Fantan group ultimately? We actually don't know. Right. Um, so we, we get indications from, from the end of, of the memos where Starnes is, is discussing about having this group shut down. He's trying to take measures to get it shut down. He went, what looks to us like behind the prime minister's back and with the RCMP commissioner directly to the military, asking them to recall their military officer who was, who was part of the executive of this group. He meets privately with Solicitor General Warren Allman when he takes over. And he's got assurances that the group is getting wound down and is going to stop. And that's the late 71 into 72. But we don't actually have an end date. We don't actually know if the group stopped. We don't know. Again, it raises troubling questions about what else was the PMO involved in over the years, because we don't know, was this group ever revived again in a different fashion? Did, did something ever come about in the mid-90s or the early 90s? We don't know if it's been repurposed again. We don't know really anything about the, the really end point for definitively of this group. Right. And what does it say? Well, I mean, I suppose back at the time, if you looked at the, at the, at the climate in 71, uh, 70, 71, there was this idea that, um, that Quebec separatism was a threat to the national security of the country. Right. But I suppose there's no way of, of this being totally explained under those rules. I mean, perhaps you could explain that. Well, I mean, the threat, the threat would come in the form of, you know, you're talking about it's, it's a fine line between issues of national security and national unity. So it, it's, it's important in terms of understanding where and what the threat is. And so that threat that the RCMP had said that they actually told the government that what they're most concerned about is violence and those who are seeking and, and try seeking it out and, and using it for the purposes of overthrowing the government, these kinds of things. They did not want to be targeting separatism writ large as the government wanted to do because they felt that that's going to create more separatists. Uh, and I don't think they're wrong in that assessment at all. No. What, what do you walk away from this with, given your experience and also having read through all these documents? 
Um, there's a lot of problems here for me. I mean, it, there's problems in terms of one, why this was not revealed sooner. The narrative that's been continued to be propagated over and over again that, you know, the RCMP of, of the 1970s was filled with a m- bunch of, you know, illegal uh, operators and, and rule breakers and uh, basically gone rogue when that's not that's not true. What we see more and more is that this is an outright lie, if you ask me. Um, and, and it's becoming more of a problem, too, if I find in discussions of inquiries. Uh, there's a lot of discussion today about foreign interference inquiries and that, well, a lot of it will need to be classified. And so maybe we shouldn't do one. And this is evidence to me that we should, um, because it's important because commissions of inquiry document things. And they're important ways to hold governments to account in a democracy. And even if it's 50 years later, that still can happen. And that's important to recognize here. At the same time, we need to be really asking hard questions about what we should be classifying and for how long. And we can't be using classification to hide government scandal. Right. And, and if you had a reaction to this, have you heard from those who are, I mean, those like, who are named in it uh, specifically, I imagine, are all gone, no doubt. Uh, but have you had any reaction from any of the people that are mentioned in here? No, not no, not yet. And I, I mean, Lalonde, I think, I believe he passed away earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so we never got a chance to, to talk Mark to Lalonde, him. Mark Lalonde, of course, who yeah. people may remember, yes. Yeah. So we never got a chance to actually talk to him and ask him about this. Um, I don't know about other people involved, but I have not heard anything yet. I mean, the PMO, I know, was asked by the Globe for comment and and they gave nothing, which even something to the effect of, you know, this was in our past and, you know, we're going to consider declassifying it and we don't do anything like that anymore. I would have expected to hear something like that, but that they said nothing was actually quite surprising. Yeah. And what's surprising is that these documents were were released quite freely, I mean, at least upon request, because yeah. they were already declassified. So they've basically been sitting um, available if anyone cared to go look, I suspect, or maybe not. Yeah, yeah, that, uh, that's the that's the impression I got. I mean, uh, Philip could fill in that picture more, but that's the impression I got that they were there. They had been declassified under access to information for someone else, but they were still sitting uh, within PCO. Wow. Uh, what would you like to see come of this then? You know, I'd like to see a broader declassification effort on this file, but also just in general in terms of of what's being held. That's, you know, things that are older than 30 years old. Uh, we need to have a serious, an actual serious talk and policy put forward about considering mandatory declassification of things so we can get a better understanding of of what's happened in the past. And look, this has direct ramifications for the present. Whether it's commissions, whether it's classification and access to information for for journalists, for historians, this is relevant now. Yeah. I mean, one thing that you pointed out that I thought was really interesting is even at the time, the RCMP officer you were mentioning uh, spoke about this as being being a real potential scandal and to, to watch out. In other words, they were saying, as you mentioned earlier, don't do this. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's the, that's exactly what the impression is. And that, that's what we we have. We need to be we need to understand that intelligence services, uh, you know, operate at the behest of, of the government. Um, well, of course, we we, you know, target we we, we should target uh, people who are engaged in illegal activities and they shouldn't be doing unauthorized activities. Of course, uh, they should be held accountable for that. But at the same time, we have to hold policymakers to account for the things that they asked for and the things that they ordered of their intelligence service. Well, uh, Dennis, I look forward to seeing what comes next on this one. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. I don't know how often you take public transit, so to speak, communal transport, let's call it. So planes, trains, buses, you name it, ferries. Um, 
And of course, there's always families on 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 these modes of transportation, and I think it's fine. I mean, I've been on planes, I've been on long plane rides. Of course, I was based in Asia for a while, and when I would come home, that was like a 15 hour flight, which is a very long flight. And and sometimes, of course, you'd end up in an aisle, and there'd be like families all around you, and it was kind of cool. I mean, you don't get as much sleep, but whatever. I've never had a problem, obviously, with having a bit of noise on a flight and especially because the kids are fun, right? I mean, they're enjoying it. It's all watching families take journeys together. They're usually either going home to visit family or they're coming back from visiting family. So there's always all kinds of, there's a kind of a cool dynamic going on there. But I suppose if you have a big meeting the next day or you have something really important going on in your life and you need to focus and concentrate on a plane and you can't afford to sit in first class where there are usually very few children, um, well, maybe you'd want an area that was kid-free, right? Uh, last year, there were, you may have seen this video. This was one of those viral videos you see of a, of a young, like a two-year-old, a toddler, standing on the tray table of a plane, jumping up and down while to yanking the seat in front of her. All the while, the passenger in that seat seems very stoic about the whole thing. But that one went viral, sort of the idea that you know, that uh, sometimes kids on planes can be a bit disruptive. Now, normally, I mean, that's that's the parents. I mean, the kids are going to go crazy. I'm going to have fun no matter what. They're going to enjoy themselves on this adventure. I, I guess it would be up to the parents to try to cool them out a little bit. Not always easy. Not always easy, as I can attest to. But there have been airlines in the past who've looked at this idea of creating a child-free section. And there's one that came out with it this week, Corindon Airlines, or a Turkish-Dutch leisure airline, they announced that they will launch an adult only adult zone for guests age 16 and older on routes between Amsterdam and Curaçao starting on November the 3rd. Now that's meant for adults without kids and for quote business travelers who want to work in a quiet environment. I don't know how many business people are taking trips from Amsterdam to Curaçao, which is essentially a resort or like a beach or like going to Honolulu, but uh, that's what it says. Uh, the zone apparently consists of about 100 seats in the front section of the aircraft, a bit like the old smoking section, each costing about 45 euros per trip more. So that's what you're paying for that extra quiet. Uh, so can that idea work? It seems kind of unworkable, doesn't it? I don't know. It doesn't seem feel like it would work too well. And better yet, will we ever see it come here to Canada? Because we haven't yet. Joining me now with uh, an opinion on this is aviation industry expert, John Graddick. He's with McGill University. He's been on the show before. Uh, John, welcome back. Thank you. My pleasure to be here with you, Ben. Uh, flying, as we well know, is a little more cramped these days back there in coach where I sit. And, you know, there are longer delays these times. Kids can get who are cooped up can be get a little restless by the time they get on board. Um, but what do you make of this idea of airlines selling tickets for adult only sections? It sounds well, it sounds sort of logical and yet kind of unworkable at the same time. Yeah, so we won't do any charter of charter of rights appeals on this one just yet. Uh, because I don't think it's going to be something that the airlines would jump into uh, at this point in time because, you know, the flights are pretty full. Uh, they're making money. They are, you know, they're, they're, there's a lot of competition out there in the Canadian marketplace that is very much price-based. So to create a new product that has a price differential associated with it that would, in fact, look at trying to segregate Passengers on board an airplane. Uh, it's it's a it's a it's a complexity that I don't think Canadian airlines are interested in doing at this point in time. There are a number of other opportunities to get incremental or what they call ancillary revenue. 
So I think that uh, this is probably one that's a little too much. Right. I suppose in Europe, where the discount airline business is extremely competitive, it makes sense for an airline such as this one to kind of stick their neck out and see if this doesn't attract some attention, uh, get them some free publicity, and maybe get them some more passengers. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the whole point of this type of, of product differentiation, which is what it is, really is to get market share. Uh, and they're, they're trying to figure out what, what policy or what, what product gimmick <laughs> Don't want to use the term too glibly, but what gimmick can I use that other carriers would find a bit more difficult to implement? Uh, and if I can do that, I might have, you know, longer term sustainable competitive advantage by, by, you know, by having this product in a marketplace without anybody reacting competitively. Um, so that's what these guys are doing. They're trying to do something that they know is a little strange. That's a little more difficult to both implement and manage, uh, and they're hoping that, you know, they can get the kinks out of it as soon as they launch it so they, it makes it reasonable. But, you know, they're, 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 they're not launching it in a marketplace where there's a lot of business traffic or a lot of businessmen traveling that require to be, you know, segregated from kids. Um, so they're flying, you know, they're flying from Amsterdam to Curacao in the middle of winter, which is like flying from Vancouver to Honolulu. Uh, and you know, there's not a lot of business traffic. There's not a lot of, you know, it's a lot of families, a lot of leisure traffic. So I don't think it's going to be that much of a, uh, inconvenience to the business traffic. If you put something like this on Vancouver, Toronto or Vancouver, London, uh, it would be a very different story that, you know, you'd have to have a significant amount of the cabin reserved for families and, that would probably end up with situations where people who want to fly with the airline and have a full fare or a higher fare may not have a seat available to them because a, lo a lot of the seats have been allocated towards families. So it, it could cause some grief. Right. So, so it's, it's really a, it's, it's, it's a very targeted product and a very targeted market. Uh, and I've said, you know, the odds of that happening in Canada, uh, slim to none. Uh, and Steve Jones may may decide he wants to do it, but you know, but that's a little bit of a far fetched idea. Yeah, it, it's a weird one here because Corinthian Airlines. I mean, as you mentioned, they fly discount. You know, they fly those typical discount routes. In this case, Amsterdam to Curacao, which is really a sort of a family winter destination. It seems like it would be virtually impossible for them to take an airplane um, and then sort of make it work. I was thinking back to smoking sections in the old days. And even when you sat in non-smoking, you were fully aware there was a smoking section ahead of you or behind you. And it just feels like a very odd way of doing this, that route in particular, and also just the feasibility of it seems like it would be virtually impossible. How would you, could, it, well, could a passenger simply say, well, it was a bit loud, I'm going to complain. Yeah, I want, you know, I want a refund, whatever. So, you know, I think that, that you know, the, the, I have to admit there are carriers in the world that are doing this. Um, you know, in the U.S., Breeze Airlines um, is doing this. Right. Uh, and they basically said it's the rear of the cabin. It's got X number of rows. And I think the rows, numbers of rows are, are, are flexible. But they've called that the family cabin where you, to get the families assigned seats together, there is no charge. And they're doing it to basically accommodate, you know, families that want to travel together that are traveling on a budget. So, you know, they're, they're doing it to kind of add value to the Breeze product. They are a, 
you know, a sort of a you know, un, an ultra low cost carrier, but nobody else has decided. Allegiant hasn't followed suit. Sprint hasn't followed suit. Nobody's followed suit. They just let Breeze do its own thing. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure there's a lot of competitive success overseas. You have um, Scoot Airlines out of Singapore that has been doing this for a number of years. It really hasn't hasn't really caught on. They really, you know, they're having all kinds of problems and making sure that you you've got a, you know, you, you you've got a virtual wall between the family and the non-family section. Yeah, and if you're if you happen to be in the last row of the non-family section, sitting just ahead of the family section, uh, and you've got kids that are bouncing on, um, you know, on on tray tables behind you. Tray tables. Yeah. That, that, well, that was that was the worst of the examples. But yes, I've seen that video. Yeah, so you know, so it gets to be a little tricky, but I think that you know, well, it, it's a gimmick, it's a product. They're going to try it, and uh, you know, I, I've seen I've seen worse gimmicks tried and uh, fail. So who knows? This may or may not work. Yeah, is it a big deal in the aviation industry? Is this talked about? Sort of passengers complaining about the behavior of children? Because I, I, I you know, I fly a fair amount, and it's never bothered me. I mean, sometimes you like, if you have two, two young, two babies on either side of you think, well, I'm not going to sleep much on this flight. And yet sometimes it's great. I mean, it's fun to watch kids on planes. I mean, they have a good time and that kind of lifts the whole experience. I find no pun intended. I just, yeah, I just flew back from Seoul uh, from South Korea on a 15 hour flight from Seoul to to JFK in New York and uh, four kids uh, within two two seat rows of me. And, And you're right. Not much sleep, but you know, what are you going to do? You know, that's that's flying today. Flying today is kids. Yep. It's, it's, you know, that it's it's not a glorified trip anymore. This is a bus ride. And so, you know, when you take a bus, you don't have a, a kid's a kid zone on a bus. And so, no, you know, airlines now, aviation now, commercial aviation is very much a commodity. It's very much mass transit. Uh, and uh, you wouldn't want to. You, you wouldn't think you know, you know Vancouver Transit Authority would split up their buses between family sections and non-family sections. Um, so I don't think that's a concept that would go very well in the Canadian aviation market. John Graddock is an aviation expert. He's at McGill University. We're talking about uh, we were talking about uh, adult-only areas on planes earlier. There's one airline in Europe, a discount airline, that's just brought this up. They're going to have an adult-only zone. They're charging passengers more for that. And we've been talking about how we're really never going to see this happen in Canada. At least we don't think so anytime soon. Uh, John, this was an interesting one this week. Uh, Air Canada announcing that it would no longer it's going to cancel some routes out of Calgary, nonstop flights to Ottawa, Halifax, L.A. Also Honolulu and Cancun and, and Frankfurt, but right at the end of October and those Honolulu-Cancun fight, flights, that seemed like a bit of an odd move. What's going on? Well, I'm not sure. You know, it, it, you're right. You know, Honolulu and Cancun are very much winter routes, and uh, those routes should be humming. Uh, you know, come mid, end of October, beginning of November, uh, and Air Canada spent a lot of money and time and effort to basically build up a. Alberta Hawaii market and the Alberta Mexico market. So these are strange uh, city pairs that they seem to be canceling. So it kind of leads me to a conclusion that there's a bit more, uh, there's a bit of, a bit of a fire beyond the smoke. That um, there's a message that Air Canada is uh, is giving succinctly to the marketplace, saying that you know we're not we're a little less, less interested in Calgary. In terms of a market, we we want to re we want to build our hubs in Montreal, in Ottawa, in Ottawa as well, probably uh, Toronto for sure. 
and maybe even Vancouver. And so they, they've kind of looked to Calgary as a secondary market, uh, you know, versus, you know, its traditional view of Calgary. And, you know, I, and, the, and the conspiracy theory part of me is, is kind of looking back and saying, okay, um, Danielle Smith and the Alberta government have really made a very, very clear statement in terms of their support for WestJet out of Calgary, uh, you know, throwing, throwing, you know, throwing million bucks at it in fact um and i think this is you know air canada saying well wait a second you know we're, you know we're not second class citizens in calgary uh we we are that we are we were we and we still want to be a, a good corporate citizen but if we're going to be treated as second class by the alberta government guess what uh we'll show you what second class really means and <laughs> that that, wow. that that seems to be yeah. a mess that seems to be a message to me. I think the message that Air Canada gave saying it's, you know, because of their shortage of pilots are affecting the, the regional routes. None of these routes that they talked about canceling yesterday are regional routes. They're all mainline routes. So right. I think that's a bit of a trial balloon that they're throwing out there that doesn't seem to be make, make much right. sense. So, pro- so the pilot shortage is real, but pr- maybe not the explanation for this one on the part of Air Canada. It feels like in some senses, Air Canada and WestJet in their own ways, because I just flew through Calgary not long ago, and it really is a WestJet hub at this point, that these two airlines are, are sort of divvying up territory um, amongst themselves, focusing on where they think they're the strongest. Is that good or bad news uh, for us, the flying public? Well, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that, you know, what Air Canada is doing is giving a message to WestJet. Like, you know, WestJet's got 187 airplanes. And when they now that they've brought in the swoop airplanes back into the WestJet fleet, and to to be a to be a Calgary airline, that's a lot of airplanes that you're you've got. And I think the message that you know is saying, okay, Air WestJet, you want to focus on Calgary, focus on Calgary, but we'll be a very very strong competitor in the rest of the Canadian marketplace. So be prepared to not see. Many of your airplanes go to many city pairs that are not that are beyond, you know, a, a Calgary originating or destination point. So, I think Air Canada is uh, is marking its territory, saying, "Okay, if you guys want to play in Calgary, WestJet, be my guest." Wow, the Air Wars, uh, John Gradick, as always. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Ben. We'll do this again sometime. <laughs> Let's let's talk honeybees in this last uh, segment of the show tonight. You may have seen this story yesterday. It created a lot of news. I'm not going to use the pun again. I'm not going to use the pun again. Uh, It was well covered yesterday morning. Five million bees and their hives flew off a truck in the midst of a hive move uh, after the driver swerved to avoid a collision. This happened in Burlington, Ontario, outside of Toronto. And uh, the bees, of course, wound up uh, on the ground, scattered and bothered, here's the truck driver and beekeeper himself, Tristan Jameson. I swerved, um, nearly swerved into the ditch, tried to correct, and dumped all the hives. All these bees are moving, so they're all going to be coming out. They don't know where their home is. They're going to take a little orientation flight, try to figure out where they are, and right now there's a ton of bees just all over the place. We're waiting for them to calm down, relax, and come back to the hive and hopefully get as many bees out here as safely as possible. There we go, Tristan Jameson. Uh, explaining that quite quite wonderfully, considering the circumstances. I mean, I don't know if you ever saw the movie The Swarm in the 70s, because I did. And that was back when there was sort of this 
crazy fear of killer bees, right? This was one of those 70s things. And um, so I was thinking of like the swarm. Of course, it didn't look like that at all. And Tristan was remarkably calm while describing it. So, uh, you know, put your fears away. Uh, but of course, it prompted Halton police who police that part of uh, Ontario to close off the area and get that bee retrieval underway. And what they did, and this is interesting, is they sort of sent out a distress signal to other beekeepers in and around the area to come help out um, to try and try and make sure this all ended without any major damage done. One of those beekeepers uh, is Luke Peters. He is a beekeeper and founder of Humble Bee, Humble Bee, I should say, in Hamilton. And he joins me tonight. Luke, thanks so much for staying up late. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Quite the 24 hours, quite the 24 hours. Uh, I didn't realize, I mean, it makes perfect sense that when something like this would happen, that they would get other beekeepers out to help out. Uh, but would they Would they know you already? Would you? Would there be a list? How does that work? Well, I don't know what list I'm necessarily on for <laughs> the police to call me that early in the morning for a specific no bee incident. But it was rather unusual to get a call from the police in the morning about uh, cleaning up some bees. So yeah, it, it was like six a. Yeah. It's six a.m. Right? Well, or, or just after six a.m. That's that is early, obviously. Yeah. So, um, you know, my my day changed quite a lot. I I decided to you know change it up and, and go lend a hand and see what the deal was with all those bees. Yeah. So, so you literally got a phone call. Like, did it wake you up? And they sort of said, "Hey, we need your help." Is that kind of how it went down? Yeah, uh, I didn't. I didn't actually answer the phone the first time. I ended up calling the officer back uh, yes. reluctantly because it's usually never good news, right? <laughs> you get true, a, true enough. Yes. Early. I was, you know, did, was there uh, breaking at my farm? Uh, you know, what, what was going on? Uh, but yeah, so got the call. Got realized that that is a pretty urgent issue. Um, you know, if. By chance, I was ever in an accident with my bees. I would definitely, you know, like a like a hand. And once I got on on site, you know, there's still lots of bees all over the place. But a lot of other beekeepers started showing up too, and it was kind of really nice to see so many people willing to lend a hand. Yeah, it really is. What was it like when you got there? I mean, I can't quite picture that many bees. Uh, on the loose and and as uh tristan was mentioning the beekeeper who's owns these bees they're a bit out of sorts when this kind of thing happens yeah i mean it's not a pretty sight um i've definitely seen a lot more bees but in a much happier situation um you know i know like the number that's been tossed around a lot is five million bees five million bees um you know which does sound like a lot um I would say that like for beekeepers and people who work in this industry, we don't count every individual bee. Right. Uh, it would take a long time. First of all, yeah, uh, probably a waste <laughs> of time too. Yeah, I suspect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Like, 2,303,000. Like, uh, like uh, yeah. um, yeah. they're, they're super organisms, right? So one ant isn't necessarily counted, but the ant hill, the ant colony is is definitely counted and that's kind of how beekeepers gauge it so there was maybe 20 to 30 hives each mm-hmm. one of those hives can contain around 660,000 uh, bees um so you know that's kind of what we what we saw there and uh yeah the, the bees were not happy there was bees in the air bees on the ground bees on on people 
uh, yeah, bees just trying to find their find their home. Yeah, I, I, do 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 they become do they st- do they sting more when they when they're unhappy? I, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure how that worked. Oh yeah, I mean yeah. First of all, so. they had to deal with their home getting moved, and then maybe getting strapped, maybe not the correct way on a trailer, and getting bounced off that trailer onto the road, maybe a car hitting you. So, I mean, I would be very grumpy. I mean, no coffee yet, and and all that <laughs> happening to me, you know, in the morning, I would I would not be in a good state. But no. these are pretty docile, right? Like they don't want to sting people. When they sting, they die. So it's Mm -hmm. literally the last thing that they're going to do. And we have some pretty gentle bees in terms of the genetic pool in this, in this part of the world. So um, it really wasn't that bad in terms of how mad the bees were and how they were acting. But there was, the driver did get stung quite a lot. I didn't get stung at all when I showed up and, and helped out where I could. Right. So how does one go about, even how does an army of beekeepers go about uh, gathering up 20 to 30 hives of bees? So this equipment was pretty much scattered uh, initially. And basically you're trying to put all these boxes together and the frames that fit in these boxes in the boxes and stack together and put on these shipping pallets and get the, these pallets back on to the trailer. So fortunately, that was done really fast. Like I mentioned, there was a lot of beekeepers uh, willing to come out and support, um, you know, the, this beekeeper that <laughs> was in a pretty bad situation. Um, so, yeah, we were just kind of shuffled together this equipment and um, the bees, you know, there was definitely a, a number of lost bees in this situation. Um, but a lot of the bees will start figuring out how to get back into their home, uh, primarily uh, by scent in that case, because they wow. don't know where they are. They've been they've been moved already, um, so they're not used to the area that they're in, and they're yeah just trying to find their way back to their colony. Right, and, and did most of them? I, I guess we, we we won't do specific numbers here, obviously, because you're right; it is a bit silly to talk about it. The five million number just sounded, I think, sounded really good. Um, but did did the majority of them? Do you think make it back in? Where they managed to? Did the beekeeper manage to get back the majority of his hives? You know, I don't think he'll really know uh, for a number of days. Like, yeah, I mean, you know, there's. Like I said, a lot of bees in one colony, but, uh, you know, I'm going to try not to play off too many numbers, but there is only just one queen per colony, per that many bees. Right. And, and if that queen dies, I can set that colony back quite a bit. And they've been all shuffled up and, and banged up, then they might not have the strength or the ability, ability to, like, bounce back from a situation like that. So they probably won't know for a little while their full loss. Um, in this accident, but uh, yeah, I mean, kind of playing off the numbers, like five million bees, it it really does sound like a lot. But you know, we have over if you want to count the bees, we have like over five billion bees in this province, wow. and you know, they're constantly under stress from from really you know tough situations. Like a lot of people have heard that the bees are having a hard time. So, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about that because 
we've been hearing. I mean, this is this is an obvious an incident that got a, that got a lot of attention. But overall, over the last many years, we've heard a lot about the struggles that honeybees are having. How are things going? You're you're right there on the on the front lines of of this. Yeah, I mean, it's not going great. It's it's definitely getting harder, and uh, it's you know it can be disheartening to see not much uh, you know progressing in terms of. Uh, assistance to make uh, you know the environment better for for bees um, you know it's been a big part of uh, my career is to try to get you know healthy bees um, you know in hives and raising uh, productive and healthy queens and get those out to beekeepers but you know they're they're dealing with these huge issues that are you know, just part of our environment. So the top three issues for honeybees and frankly, all pollinators and all bees is, uh, you know, the one is climate change and that's, mm-hmm. that's huge. And we, we know the interaction between plants and bees is, is very important and millions of years old. Um, the second is habitat loss. We're, we're losing habitat loss and that can look like a couple of different things like in Ontario, uh, the plan to develop over um, the Greenbelt, which is an area right. of farmland and, uh, you know, very di- diverse, green, beautiful part of land. And it's very important for pollinators. And uh, the third is agricultural chemicals. We have chemicals here that are banned in other countries. And it's because of the massive damage that they do to pollinators. So, like, these are three huge issues. And it's frankly, not something that we can manage as beekeepers inside the colony. Right. And it must also explain in some way why so many of you were so willing and able to come out and help yesterday when one of yours found themselves in a bit of a tough situation as well. There is that kind of love of the bees that unites you. Exactly. This is a passion-driven industry. You know, it's a very important part of agriculture, um, but... Yeah, the the people that work and stay in it are definitely caring for their bees with with like with their passion because it's right. it's very difficult to do it without that. Uh, I would probably say pretty much impossible. So, um, yeah, the people that are that are really kind of in it, it are are doing it um, a lot out of love. I mean, you know, like like in the industry, there's people doing all. Uh, kinds of things for all kinds of reasons. Um, but yeah, I think like there is a, you said like there, there is a kind of a show behind the, the scenes there when you see that many people wanting to come out and, and help out somebody they don't know. Yeah. All of you got that phone call at six o'clock in the morning too. So a lot of you were getting out of bed to come and help. Well, uh, Luke, thank you so much for, for sharing that with me and uh, I'm glad everything worked out. And it was great to hear that all of you sort of found each other and came to someone else's uh, help in a time of need. Uh, Cause clearly it was a bit of a, bit of a dicey situation there for a while. Yeah, definitely. And you know, it, it was good to hear that like no, no humans were injured <laughs> during that accident. Yeah. And uh, you know, hopefully those, those bees that found their home and yeah, I mean, and have their queen and all those things. Have yeah. A, yeah, exactly. And hopefully, you know, they're going to have, um, you know, a better environment through for the future. Yeah.
Well, Luke, I appreciate you staying. I know it's late and you were up early yesterday morning, obviously. Yeah. So uh, thank you so much right. for your time tonight. I appreciate it. All right. Take care.